Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. We've been working through the book of Ruth, and I must confess, it's all I can think about, is Ruth. This lesson, that lesson, I see grace everywhere, and I'm so encouraged because I need grace. I need a Savior. My life is hard. I'm attacked by sin. I'm attacked by the world. I know I look really good here. But it's not all that you see. Life can be very difficult. And I don't need a pseudo-God. I don't need a religious God. I don't need a hearsay God. I want to go to the scripture that I trust, open it up, and find what is true. So that when I come to grace, I can take it home, because at home I need it. I'm sorry, I start out a little fiery. But I'm really, I'm asking you this question. God is showing me grace. He's showing me the foundation of my relationship with him, which is him-centered, not me-centered. Are you ready to join me in that? Do you want grace in your life? Do you want to see Yahweh as your Savior explicitly, implicitly, without fail? That's what I want. And I've been praying. It's not a very complicated prayer. Father, this is such sweet stuff. Please don't let me mess it up. I want you to be able to smile with me. I want you to be able to rejoice with me because our God is a great God. And we can see it right there in black and white in front of us. Okay, so we're in the book of Ruth. We're going to cover seven verses in chapter three tonight. So it's a four-chapter book, so we're kind of pivotal. We're right in the middle. And this is a pivotal time in our little sister's life. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But before the, before we go to Ruth, we need to do a pre-verse. A pre-verse helps us understand and refocus again on the scripture and prepares us as we go into the scripture to receive it in its entirety with clarity. So we go to a pre-verse and actually I fudged a little bit. It goes a little bit into verse 10. But technically, because there's less words in the fudge than the whole verse, it doesn't count as a second verse. So it is still just a pre-verse. Did you follow? So Paul's writing to Philippians. He's writing to people that are faithful. They're good people. They've stood with him. 
He has a lot of fondness for them. And when I think of Philippians, it's, it's how I would feel about you all. You know, I say it all the time. This is a great group. How do you like your church? Our church is a great group. We have serious Christians. When I say serious Christians, people that are born again, that are pursuing Jesus Christ as Lord. And when I think Ewan's, I think of the same thing. I see you as faithful people. Not people that are perfect, but people that have focused on walking with the Lord, walking in the right way, in a way that glorifies him. And so, I have a lot in common with Paul when I talk to you. You're very faithful. Now, you've not stood with me in any trips. Okay, I understand that. The Philippians stood with Paul when he went to prison, and when he was on missionary trips, they helped support him. So they had a really tight relationship. Let me read a synopsis of a few verses on our way to the verse. So Paul's talking, and he says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you because of your fellowship, your partnership, your koinonia, your oneness with me in the good news from the very first day until now. And not only that, but I'm confident of this, and I share this confidence with you. I am confident, Paul is confident, that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes again and he's revealed, you will be there. We'll be there together because God is the one that's made the commitment. It's his work in our lives that is getting us to where we need to go. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, like I said, you're partakers, your fellowship with me with grace, both in imprisonment and then the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Okay, here's the verse. We finally came to the pre-verse. And Paul says, it is my prayer. Now, we all know that when Paul said, this is my prayer, everybody stops. We don't want to miss anything. He's saying, this is the most, when I'm thinking about you in this context, this is the most important thing that I can think of, and I don't want you to miss anything. So he says, this is my prayer regarding you, that your love may abound more and more, particularly with knowledge and discernment, so that you can approve what is excellent. So just think about this for a little bit. He said, it's my prayer that your love would grow. He could say, I pray that your Christian walk would grow, that your Christian experience would grow, that your walk with Jesus would grow. But he uses the term love. He says, the love that's been planted in your heart is evidence that God Almighty is there. Without God and without his divine love, there is no salvation. Without his love, without the expression of who he is, There is no salvation and there's no Christian living. And so Paul says, the evidence of God in your life is expressed by the fact that love is growing there. Your love's not perfect. My love's not perfect, but it's there. When miners took gold in to have it checked, it was usually a little piece of rock. And they'd go to the assayer and he'd look at it. 
and he'd give them a report. And he never came back and said, millions of bucks, guys, this is unbelievable. This rock is worth millions. No, it's not what they were looking for. They were looking for the evidence of gold. We're looking to see if gold exists. And so when Paul writes to us on behalf of our loving Father, he says, the love in your heart is evidence of your relationship with me. It's proof that I'm there. And so I pray that it would grow. So the actual term is to exceed a fixed amount. Okay, spilling all over the place. So I was thinking of an illustration, and I got a good one. When I was growing up, I had two kinds of uncles. I had the younger uncles. They bought my family milk when we were too poor to buy it. And they bought me a puppy. Okay, those are the right kind of uncles. And there's little Skippy running all over the house, my mom yelling at him. Anyway, loved my uncles. Then there's the second group of uncles, they're my older uncles. They're my great uncles. And one of them in particular, Uncle Reuben, I don't think there was a day in his life that he'd not wear a full suit. We were at the beach, we used to go to Pismo, and I can't swear to it, but I think he was in a suit. He's a very formal man. But here's the thing about him. The kids loved him. He was a pastor of a church in Dianuba. He was a, a seminary professor. And people loved him. He had the essence of Jesus. So I loved it when he was around because he had a little quarter machine. It was a little balsam little thing that would slide. And he'd say, here, son, open that up. So I'd open it up. There's nothing in it. he said, oh, let me try. He'd take it. He'd open it up. There's a quarter. He said, here, that's for you. A quarter out of nothing. I mean, that's pretty good wages for an 11-year-old in that day. Okay? I'm getting a quarter every time I see Uncle Reuben. So I'm laying in bed, in bed at night, and I'm thinking, if I got my hands on the machine, I could just, all night, I could just be making quarters. <laughs> they would just keep coming. On Friday, when it was ice cream day, I would be the king of the playground. Quarters for everyone right here. We're all living high. We're having ice cream today. Everybody's having ice cream. Okay, now some of you are saying it's kind of a lame illustration. Okay, but you get the point, don't you? Those quarters just keep coming. And Paul says, the love that's been planted in your heart, I pray that it'll just keep coming. That it'll spill all over everything. And not just spill indiscriminately, but I pray that it would spill in two different areas. One would be knowledge. And one would be discernment. I pray that your love would grow into knowledge and discernment. And the word for knowledge is epigenosis, which means, well, I call it, it's knowledge on steroids. It's a full knowledge. It's a big knowledge. There are some New Testament scholars that say, and I agree with this, not that my vote counts, I'm not saying that, but I, 
I agree with this. It said this word, epigenosis, is a word that almost demands participation in the knowledge. Does that speak of our relationship with God and through knowledge? It demands a participation. We're not just taking facts and getting them here and saying, man, I'm getting smarter by the minute, can hardly stand it. No, we're looking for information that we participate in with the view to wisdom and knowing how to apply it. And here's the result, and we can't go to the end of verse 10. We're just going to go to the first little verse. It says, so that you can decide, so that you can discern the things are excellent. Another way you could translate that, so that you can decide things that can go either way. I want your love, the presence of God in your life, to grow into knowledge and discernment, so that as you're going through life, you can discern things that can go either way. Now, does that apply to us today? We're bombarded with all kinds of thinking, and it's tough to find ground zero so many times in the world that we live in today. And so what I'm thinking is, on our way to Ruth, on our way to Bible knowledge, I want us to be on board together with the whole idea of that the living presence of God in my life, because if there's no living presence, there's no need for knowledge. If the presence of God is not in our life, there's no way that we can be Christian. We can be religious, but we can't be Christ followers. And so on the way to Ruth, this is where I've been. On the way to Ruth, Father, I want the evidence of your presence in my life to grab the information and the discernment that goes with it. So that as I'm living day to day, so that I'm in real life, I have the ability to discern and judge the things that can go either way. So that's the preparation verse. And with that, we go to Ruth. And we're going to apply that principle. We're going to apply that teaching to the information that we see in Ruth. Now, this is not binge Ruth, not Netflix, but we are going to do what's happened so far. You know, when you're watching a series, you come to the new episode, and they have, this is what's happened so far. Okay, I just want to make sure you're tracking with me, all right? So here is what's happened so far. Elimelech left the land. He left the promised land. He thought it was for a short time with two sons and one wife. They moved to a country that was adversarial. Marauders, bandits came out of that country and attacked Israel. And yet he was desperate to find food for his family. And he went to a a most grim situation. While he's there, Keep in mind, he only wanted to be there a short time. While he's there, he dies. Sometime within a 10-year span, he dies, and his two sons marry foreign women. His sons die. Naomi, his wife, is left with two daughters-in-law 
you have three childless widows. Hardly anybody more helpless in this culture than a childless widow. No husband, no children, all alone. It's a desperate situation. Naomi, Elimelech's wife, hears that the famine in Israel is over and she decides to leave for home. The girls cry. They don't want her to go. They want to go with her. It ends up one girl stays in Moab. One girl goes. And Ruth is the one that goes with Naomi. And Ruth makes her famous declaration to Naomi. Mother-in-law, don't suffer me to leave you. Where you go, I want to go. Where you live, I want to live. Your God is going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. Where you die, I will die. That's my commitment to you. And little Ruth, our little sister Ruth, with no church background, with no religious background at all except the religion of lies, has put her faith in Yahweh. She's put it all on the line and she's become an example to you and I what it means to be saved. I'm not holding anything back. There's a point in time in our lives when nothing we have is dear enough to hold back. I want to be clean so bad. I want to be forgiven so bad. I want the pressure of sin to be gone so bad. I will not cling to anything. Take me. Here's where I, here's where I need to be. Cleanse me. Make me yours. I'm not holding it back anything. And that was the confession of little Ruth. They come back to Israel. They live around Bethlehem. And Boaz, ah, Boaz, all we know about him, he's kind of a wealthy farmer guy. Doesn't seem like he has any wives. And he's identified as a family member, a kinsman redeemer. Now, in the Israeli culture, and even in the law, if you have a brother that dies without children, and there's a younger brother without a wife, he is to marry the brother's wife without children and raise children to his brother's name. It's a kinsman. Because the lineage was a big thing to the Jews, to the Israelites. And so Malan and Chilion, his brother, are both dead and there's no children. And so by custom, by law, Ruth is eligible to marry a kinsman redeemer and produce children for her former husband to maintain his line. And Boaz enters the picture, and he is the kinsman redeemer. Okay, Boaz joins the harvest. Oh, Ruth joins the harvest as a gleaner. Okay, so they come. Get the picture here. Here's two women with nothing. They've got relatives. And they've got neighbors that remember them. But can you imagine? Naomi's back. Oh, that's terrific. Is Elimelech back? No, Elimelech died. What about the boys? They're gonzo. You mean she's by herself? Yeah. Did she strike it rich there? And not, not really. Oh, no. She's going to be living in the spare room. This is not good news. 
And not only did she back, but she brought a girl with her. You see the, you see the situation we're in here? This is the real-life situation. Naomi comes back and says, Call me loser. Yahweh has dealt with me very harshly. I left here full. I had a husband. I had two children. I had a future. I had faith. I was in the promised land. Not just the land, the promised land. And my family lived on a place that would be ours forever. And I come back, I have nothing. That's the situation she finds herself in. But here's Ruth. She goes out to the barley harvest as a gleaner. And what that means is that she follows the harvesters and she picks up what they miss. And she's not doing this for extra money. She's not interested in the matinee or Starbucks. No. They're trying to stay alive. She's trying to glean enough of the harvest so that she and Naomi can stay alive. Boaz hears of her faithfulness to Naomi. Boaz invites her to stay with his people and to continue to glean. Boaz feeds Ruth with leftovers built in. Boaz makes provision for Ruth. Leave a little in the field. Okay? We're going to talk about that more afterward through our seven verses. Because Boaz is such a sweet picture of our permanent Redeemer. You know, I don't know how you are. Sometimes I'm overcome with my failures and my sin, and I ask the question, how can Jesus really love me the way I think he does? How is it possible? I need a Savior, but do I merit one? And so I'm studying this, and I'm watching Boaz, and I'm seeing how he acts out with Ruth, and it occurs to me, it occurs to me that he's a picture of Yahweh. He's saying, Yahweh is saying, this is how I operate. When we started Ruth, he broke my heart, but he said, there's little Ruth. She doesn't amount to a hill of beans to anybody, but I'm calling her to be mine. This is how I roll. I'm not looking for superstars. I'm looking for those that are needy. I'm not looking for the ones that are healthy. I'm looking for the ones that are sick. I am the great physician. I am the healer. And that is the message of the scripture. And when we go there, we have confidence that this is what God is saying to me. This is what God is saying to you. Dear brother, dear sister, do you see this? Gospel is almost a diversion. It's good news. Good news is the proper translation. This is good news. Yahweh, the God of all creation not only has affection for you, but is committed to you, committed to your salvation through Jesus Christ. And it's not hidden. It's right there if you look for it. All right. Let's go to the text for the day. Okay? Chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Remember, this is pivotal. Let me read it, and we'll kind of talk it through, okay? Then Naomi, the mother-in-law, said, My daughter. Don't you like that? It's not daughter-in-law anymore. My daughter. 
Not a slip of the tongue. It's there for a reason. Naomi has found Ruth to be a faithful, faithful daughter-in-law. She's a daughter. She says, my daughter, should I not do everything I can? Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well for you? Translated means, should I not help you find a husband where you can have a household and a family and security and be productive in this life? Should I not do everything that I can to help you get there? Verse 2, is not Boaz our relative? Do you understand? Do you see that? Naomi's beginning to talk about Ruth as her daughter and our relative. Honey, Boaz is our kinsman. You're part of us now. We've brought you into our family. Now, is not Boaz our relative, verse 2, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So this is the end of harvest. And so they would go. It's kind of interesting because Bethlehem must be kind of high because it says they went down to the threshing floor. Normally the threshing floor would be elevated because you want a wind to come through there to blow the shaft away from the grain. So they've gathered all the, all the wheat all the barley, and they're throwing it up in the air, and the wind is blowing the chaff off. And that's what they're calling winnowing in the threshing floor. So Boaz is there. Uh, tonight, you know, tonight can go 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock. I'm not sure exactly why they're there at night, but they are. Verse 3. All right, Ruth, this is what I want you to do. <clears throat> Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man, Boaz, until he has finished eating and drinking. You see what's happening here? The gals have got together and said, you know what? He's a kinsman redeemer. It would be perfectly legitimate to reach out to him, and he would become your husband. He would take our land and our name, and he would preserve us. It's a perfect, legitimate proposition. So, end, end of verse 3. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. We'll have to explain that. It gets a little dicey right there. You're, you're all reading that with me? Okay, good. I want you to go to sleep. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she, she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, then his heart was merry. Not drunk. Not drunk drunk. But he was happy. The harvest is in. It's a celebration. It's like a big party. They're working. I get it. They're working. But they have a great meal. Everybody goes to bed and getting ready to go for the next day. And so after he had eaten his meal, his heart was merry, he went to lay down on the end of the heap of grain. Now, 
I was raised in a farm family, and I've taken, I've never been able to stay in the barn all night, but I've taken naps in the wheat or the barley. The wheat's better. It's more form-fitting. The bed doesn't raise up or anything, but it's really form-fitting. Boaz laid down. Ruth watched where he lay, and she came softly. Nobody could see her. And she uncovered his feet, and she lay down. And because of the integrity of this man and the integrity of this woman, Naomi trusted Boaz, and she trusted Ruth to propose this. And what Ruth is saying to Boaz, if you will have me, I will be your wife. You are my kinsman redeemer. A little while earlier, two months earlier, you said, may Yahweh spread his wings over you and care for you and take care of all that you need because of your faithfulness to Naomi and your trust in him. And now Ruth is saying, will you be the man? That's where we stop for tonight. So here we see Ruth. She's putting it all on the line again. I mean, she's obeying Naomi. You think this was easy? Tremendous obedience, tremendous faith. And her mom is saying, Honey, I think this is our guy. Go and he will tell you what to do. He, when he wakes up and sees you there, he may say, Hey, take a hike. But we'll have to wait till next week to hear exactly what he said. In the meantime, let's gather some grain. This approach in the barn is the most discreet and private way for Ruth to make this gesture. She is a chaste woman with reasonable expectation of Boaz's duty offering herself in marriage. From a practical standpoint, keep in mind what we're talking about here. We're talking about the love that's been planted, the evidence of the life of God in our lives, gathering information, knowledge of him with the ability to use it. And he's speaking right to us. And he's saying, Ruth, pay attention to Ruth. She comes to total surrender. She comes to total obedience. She doesn't amount to anything in this world, but watch how I take care of her. If you want to have an idea of what I think about you, watch what I do with Ruth. Boaz is a picture of Jesus. Uh, I can tell you one little story of courtship. It's difficult for us in our age to talk about love and courtship when there's a battle raging as to whether chromosomes even determine men and women. I don't mean to beat up on anybody with that, you know, because it's popular to do it. I'm just saying in a practical way, the world system has gone south. And a lot of our dreams and expectations are going with it. Uh, 
Hon, can I tell him about the time you put your arm around me? I think that's a yes. <laughs> Brenda and I met at school. And we loved the Lord. She was the thing that drew me to her was that out of everybody in that school, she knew Jesus. Everybody loved that. Everybody wanted to be around her. The fact she was drop dead gorgeous didn't hurt. Let me be honest. So, anyway, we are having a courtship. It's nothing as glorious as Ruth and Boaz, but on an October evening in Omaha, where we have what we call Indian summer, and the weather takes a break, and the sun comes out, and the leaves are turning. And after dinner, the sun is still up, and we'd go for a walk in the neighborhood of the school. And I held her hand. Pretty conservative. I get it. I get it. But it was very meaningful. We were serious. And so I would hold her hand while we were walking. And as our relationship grew, one night, I'll never forget, we're walking along St. Catherine's Hospital. <laughs> and we're holding hands. And she took my hand and put it around her waist. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. I was hoping she liked me. I was really hoping. But she made a declaration. She had a, a, a reputation of being very standoffish, not unfriendly, but very circumspect. And that evening, when we took that walk, it was a sweet moment when she said, I care for you. I care for you. You're not just another guy. So, two things. One, I long for each one of you to have that relationship, to have a lover in your life that you can share the Lord Jesus with, that you can share the, the life with. But even beyond that, if you can see with me that when this writer writes, probably Samuel, when he's writing this, He's throwing the doors of God's heart wide open. And he's saying, when it comes to you, this is how the Father feels. This is the way he rolls. He is a lover. He has compassion. Keep in mind, the thing that's been frustrating is that God's righteousness has demanded judgment. And consequences. But from the very beginning, from Genesis, the Father had a message. He said, salvation is on its way. Forgiveness, not just a whitewash, but total forgiveness is on its way. Jesus is on his way. Boaz is an example of how I feel about you. 
And when Jesus does his work, I'm going to be free to absolutely shower you with everything that I am without violating righteousness. Do you understand that? He is absolutely within his rights to receive us with all our sin and stain because Jesus paid the price and it's no longer on the table. And so when we're looking, we're looking for our love to grow, to spill out the presence of God in our life. And we want knowledge. We want the kind of knowledge that we actually participate in. And we want the discernment that comes with it, tied very, so that we can live a life that's pleasing, so that we can live a life where we make decisions, where it can go either way. Now, Boaz is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is our forever redeemer. Boaz says, don't go to another field. You're welcome right here. Stay with my people. I want you to glean with my women. If you need a drink, my guys will do the heavy lifting. Right from the very beginning, Boaz is beginning to take care of her. He's beginning to watch over her. When Samuel writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's saying, I want you to understand the Redeemer is Yahweh, is Jesus, Yeshua. Boaz says, I've heard of your distress. I've heard of your faithfulness. May Yahweh meet your needs. May Yahweh spread his wings over you and give you refuge. Sit here and have lunch with me, daughter. Dip your morsel here. And I'm going to send some grain with you. I'm going to give you some roasted grain. And it'll be more than you can eat. I don't want to lose that. It's not just being hospitable. This is a picture of our God. And Boaz says, not only are we going to give you something to eat, I'm going to dip your morsel here. I'm going to give you more than you can eat. I'm giving you, I'm supplying you. I'm taking responsibility for you. Hey guys, when Ruth's around, don't be too careful how you're bundling the grain. And if enough is not falling on the ground, when nobody's looking, take some from the bundle and throw it down. Do you understand what's being said here? Now, I'm from a farm, com- from a farm family. No farmer I know of walks away from grain. This is a very interesting story. You'll enjoy hearing it. I used to harvest on the coast. And so there's hills like this. And in order for the combine to work right, the body of the machine had to stay level because the grain is walking through here and going down into the deal. But the hill's going like this. So it got huge hydraulic rams. And so as you're driving, you're tapping this thing and this, you're trying to keep it level so the grain doesn't go all the way through. The problem is the farmer seeded the field 
with a D6. A D6 is a caterpillar that can crawl up a mountain. So he's got seed halfway down the hill. And he wants me to get it with the wheel machine. And so I'm just telling you, so I'm driving, and I know it, it's slipping. It's slipping. And I'm saying, I can't get that. He says, get it. Yeah, but, but I may be lost. We'll miss you. <laughs> we planted the grain. I know, but you planted it with a cat. Nobody in his right mind can get this with a wheel machine. Well, you will try. German posh raider. You will try to get the grain. Yes? The point is, there's not a farmer alive that leaves grain in the field. It's a completely countercultural, counter-human experience. And yet, Yahweh, when he gave the law, part of the law was, when you harvest, you leave the corners. You leave the corners on purpose. You've worked very hard to, to build this field, to plant it, and you leave the corners on purpose. And when you go through the vineyards, don't be too careful. That's the heart of our God speaking. Can you receive that? So here I am. I'm thinking, I don't measure up. There's no way I can make it. I fail. I've got a sinful heart. And so the presence of God in my life expressed in love is spilling out to good biblical information and the ability to apply it and the ability to discern and decide what's coming. And what he's telling me, he says, Dear brother, my dear son, of course you can't make it. Of course you're a sinner. We've known that from day one. What I'm saying is, I am the provider. I am the one that makes salvation happen. If we don't get the flavor of grace, salvation is going to be nothing but a burden, and it's going to fail. Salvation that succeeds is built on the movement of God in our lives. And our job is not to produce righteousness. It means to get in step with righteousness. And so like Ruth, when she's brought to decisions, what our God, what our Jesus is asking, put it all on the line. Leave your country. Leave what's precious to you. Cling to me, because I am your kinsman redeemer. Don't hold anything back. Because I want you to know that my heart is so full for you. I want you to have it in writing. I want you to be able to discern it. So that the thing that you're not asking all the time, what is God thinking now? What's he thinking now? What does he think about me? I can tell you what he thinks about you. He loves you. And he shows it in ways like we see in the book of Ruth. And it speaks to me because I'm Ruth. I have nothing to brag about. I have no consequence. I can't get there on merit. And when I see my father go after her, I realize that there's hope for me. That's the point. When we studied Corinthians, Paul said, not too many of you were real cool and popular. Not too many of you were well known. No, God takes the the lesser and works in their lives. And so the thing I want us to own together 
tonight, if we could. Father, if you'd be so gracious. If we could see your heart. When we look at Boaz and we see this tender love developing for Ruth, when we see this wonderful, faithful provision for Ruth, we want to see you. Open our eyes, Lord. We need to see Jesus. We need to be transformed from the inside out. Let me say a prayer. Father, there's no way that we can understand this wonderful knowledge, this wonderful love, how all through Scripture you demonstrate your commitment to us. And Paul says that while you guys were sinners and engaged in the sphere of evil deeds, he loved you right then. But sometimes it just becomes words. But we need it to be more than words. We need it to be the revelation of your heart to us in a way that we have confidence that you've spoken. And so we need you to pull the covers off. We need your Holy Spirit to come into our lives and pull the covers back and give us understanding. Help us see with the eyes of our heart how large, how dense, how thorough is your love for us just the way we are. So we commit ourselves to you and we do ask that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, not only so that we enjoy fellowship with you, but we really want to enjoy this kind of koinonia with each other, celebrating a growing understanding of this wonderful grace so that we can share it with each other. And that love we have for each other grows and deepens and we become an encouragement. And all these things, we just commend them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.